us off with i know everyone was really concerned the internet was abuzz my local news here was even talking about it wendy's surge pricing came up everyone's like oh it's gonna be like uber it's gonna be like penny stocks that you're gonna buy a hamburger it's gonna be like bitcoin well the morning brew just put put out update wendy's says it is no longer planning to introduce surge pricing our national nightmare is over and now with that out of the way we can all Settle down and get a little bit more comfortable. It's a tough month, too. This February, it's been a really tough month in the spark in the spot market. It's been a tough month for me. I write newsletters on Thursdays. There's five Thursdays in February because it's a leap year. Although Mike Fitzgerald says March, June, August, and November have five Saturdays each this year. So we do get some payback starting next year. Well, cool. Thank you, Michael. By the way, double brokerage freight fraud. We've talked about it enough. Well, now it's hit pop culture because take a look what happened to which Kardashians? Courtney Kardashian. Her truck was stolen from a facility. TMZ had the scoop on this. They said Courtney Kardashian, her parents at her Buzzy Health Supplement brand Lemmy, experienced a crazy heist last week because someone jacked their ass and left a ransom note. We're told this happened at their logistics facility that Courtney and her team uses for these. Is this pronounced Lemmy? Lemmy products and this truck had been taken uh it contained more than four million dollars worth of lemmy burn one of her top selling products in the lemmy lineup i wasn't familiar with this stuff they don't market it towards guys it's like probiotics one of it is like vaginal health so i guess that's why i had never heard of it but it sounds like she got double brokered here's what it says the article says our sources tell us an individual or individuals appear to have hacked the facility system and made their way onto the property with false paperwork and identification and we're told they literally drove off the lot scot-free Maybe change the MC, maybe change the paperwork. They haven't released the ransom note. I'm not sure how much they're asking for. I don't know if they knew there was $4 million worth of product in here until they read that article. But um, there you have it. If you see that truck driving around with those uh, probiotic supplements, take a look. Uh, speaking of the spot market, I had just mentioned that. Take a look here. I know in January we tried to be uh, a little bit um, optimistic we thought maybe we would see some recovery. You saw that mountain go up. Well, unfortunately, in February, the spot market has fallen all the way back down. All those gains that we had have reduced. Kyle Taylor says spot and rejection rates in February freefall. Spot rates for dry van loads, excluding total estimated fuel costs, have been plummeting from the surprising peak values they hit at the end of January, falling 13 percent. The outbound tender reject index is down to from 4.7 to 4.2%. You know what though? Go says, though we are all contract, February has been unusually strong for us. Josh, who's a broker, says it's brutal. David says, funny, I've been seeing increased rates all month. And truck driver uh, Rita Head says contracts are going to get crushed during bid season. That is a national average. So all of you may be seeing slightly different things depending on where you are. But in general, really not a great market right, right now. Um, this one from Reels, before we get into our guest today, Reels has a call to action. She says, you truckers are not doing a good enough job. You see a kid out there giving you an arm pump, you listen to what she has to say. Play the tape. It's come to my attention that we have neglected some of our littles out here giving us the arm pump. So for any of you kids that we missed you, I am super sorry. Let's let those horns rip. Beep, beep. 
Yeah. Do it for Reels. Do it for the kids. By the way, Reels, I got to send you an invite. I got to get you on the show soon. Then you can uh, please advise me on when that will be. Hey, on episode 687 of What the Truck, I'm talking to Gather, Sean Mitchell, about the applicability of warehouse drones, AI, and software in optimizing operations. Gather AI software enables drones to fly autonomously through warehouses with no GPS or Wi-Fi to photograph inventory stored in pallet locations. We'll find out how it works. Apparently, it's the biggest autonomous platform in the world. So tons of questions there. We got Couch.com founder, CEO Alex Beck. I can't wait for this. He's an e-commerce veteran and a direct-to-consumer expert, and he's built, like, the Match.com for couches. Like, during the pandemic, so many people bought couches. I bought one. took, like, over a year to arrive and came broken. Well, their platform will connect you with the couch that you need. I have tons of questions on that one too. Uh, It's all about chassis when consolidated chassis management's Mike Wilson joins the show. We're going to learn about their South Atlantic consolidated chassis pool, how that all works, state of chassis, that kind of thing. And we got my buddy Freightways Al Nadler here today too. He's covering uh, the eclectic and the electric, but let's tip the band because we got to talk drones. So I want to take a second to put these guys on your radar, Dynamic Logistics, because I got to say they're doing logistics the right way. Their TMS software is saving shippers a significant amount of time and money. Check them out at dynamiclogistics.com. That's logistics with an X. But right now, it's Scott Mitchell with two L's, Vice President of Customer Success at Gather AI. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Going well. Pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you coming in from? Over here, in, I'm in Chattanooga, just started pouring. We're, uh, we're part of the world you at. Uh, so I'm in Redwood City. We're headquartered out of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, though. Oh, nice. Hey, you think the uh, you think the Pirates are going to have a run this year? Remember last year? Beginning, I'm getting baseball fever. Beginning of last year, they were like surprise team. They had a couple good months and yeah. I, I think it's always exciting. I, th- I think we've always got hopes at the beginning of the year. And, and then, uh, you know, we'll see how things turn out. Um, on the other hand, the, you know, the ticket sales means cheaper tickets for us, which is always good, too. Always good, too. Always good, too. Uh, so in, introduce yourself. What do you do and what's Gather AI all about? Perfect. So I'm Sean Mitchell, I'm the Vice President of Customer Success. You said um, Gather AI is a computer vision company that provides um, ML and machine learning for autonomous inventory drones that actually go through and fly through our customer warehousing, imaging every single pallet location, and then doing a direct comparison with the warehouse management system. Um, the idea really is to identify anywhere that product may be placed inaccurately and make sure that it's it's all reconciled within the WMS. Oh, and we're getting a look at it right now. So is that one of your is that one of your drones that we just saw flying? That's around? one of our that's one of our drones in uh, one of our customer facilities. Um, that's Barrett Distribution. Um, and what we're able to do there is to go through and, and it's actually a shoe warehouse um, where they have you know, thousands upon thousands of shoes, and we're actually imaging and, and confirming that every single case is in the correct location, um, and, and really just making sure that everyone's time is spent. Um, going through and actually fixing errors as opposed to no, checking known good product. Interesting. So how does this how does this work? It looks like there's some like machine modeling. It looks like there's some 3D rendering with the, the vision application within the drones. There's obviously maybe a software and WMS component too. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, so effectively what happens is the drones fly, we go through and we create a digital map of the full warehouse. Um, and then we place little Ruko tags, little calibration markers all over the racking. Um, and as the drone flies through, it's seeing these little Ruko tags and it's going through and navigating from location to location. Each time it does, it takes a picture of that pallet. And then using AI, what we're doing is actually reading barcodes, we're reading text, we're counting cases, and then we're doing a direct comparison with the warehouse management system. Um, and anytime there's any discrepancy, we raise the exception um, and someone goes through and reviews that. And the nice part is um, compared to a person that does you know, 40 to 60 locations per hour, um, one person can run up to three drones doing over 900 locations an hour. So wow. super important in uh, throughput, 
um, as well as just efficiency in finding errors quicker within the warehouse. Why drones versus like warehouse robots, for example? I've seen some crawlers that go up on the racks. The one thing I did notice, my buddy who is in retail, he said, hey, Dooner, watch those robot videos. You'll notice something. And I was like, what? He's like, they're always sped up. No, absolutely. And, and so the beauty of the drones is they're a highly flexible resource, right? So you can go through and you can fly, you know, 13 high racking or you can fly through high racking. Um, at any point, they're lightweight, they move around and they move at a slow walking pace, right? So it, it's not as though there's any sort of large mechanism. You hit a big red button, the drone comes down and you're able to actually access the aisle. Um, and so for us, the reason we went with drones is because it's flexible. Um, it's easy and scalable. Uh, we actually use off the shelf drones. Our secret sauce is all in the software, the autonomy, as well as the image processing. Um, and so what that means then is we can we can bring the solution very cheaply, but also make sure that it's easily scalable. Um, so one person could run three drones. We have some facilities um, that run, you know, several drones each night and clear the entire warehouse end to end. Now, are there any safety concerns with like drones flying around? They, they do have blades. How do you make sure the warehouse workers are safe around these? Absolutely. So what we do then is we tie the drone directly to the aisle face. So it's not flying through free space. It's not going through and flying through walkways. Really what we do is you have an individual that places the drone in the aisle, hits go, and then just like any other cycle counting operation, you're going to pause picking in that aisle where that drone is operating. And at any time, if someone needs to access it, there's a big red button, the drone comes down, and within about 10 seconds, someone can go through and access the aisle. Um, but it is definitely restrained uh, within the aisleway itself. The other advantage here is we're taking people off of automated lifts, um, and putting them on the ground and letting them kind of go through and review the images. And what that means then is a huge net savings when it comes to safety. Interesting. So how do I action this data? How does the software component of this plug into my warehouse? Of course. So what we do is we have a web dashboard that actually goes through and gives you a virtual tour of your entire warehouse. It's got images of every single location. Um, what you can do then is walk through the aisle. You can see the locations. You can highlight any of the exceptions. Um, and then from there, everything is a direct comparison with your WMS. And so the easiest thing is it's a CSV exchange from the WMS system that allows us to go through and see what's supposed to be there. And then from our system, through the image processing, we're able to go through and confirm, yes, this is the correct product. This is the correct LPN, SKU, UPC, whatever it may be. Um, and then compare that directly with, with what's supposed to be there. Um, and then provide action to, uh, to the team on the floor. In that video that we were seeing, like that Barrett one, for example, how many mm -hmm. drones would be flying around in a location like that? Do you just need one or are there a few of them? Is it based so, on so, our footage? Excellent, uh, excellent question. So it's it's all about the throughput you're looking for. So that for that facility, um, we had two we had two drones flying through, and so one operator doing 600 locations an hour. Um, and so for us, it's based upon our customers trying to go and scan the entire facility, you know, once per quarter, once per month, once per week. And then you know, we go through and we say, okay, if, if you're going to dedicate eight hours a day flying, we may recommend three drones to go through and you know, support a facility of 30,000 pallets. You know, I look at this, I cover a lot of drone delivery. This is actually, I think, maybe the first warehouse drone that I've seen. So it's got me curious, why inventory versus delivery? I've learned a lot of the challenges that come with delivery. This seems like it might be easier because you're in a closed location. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so the nice part here is the warehouse becomes something of a black box, right? Delivery, there's a ton of technology there going through tracking when it goes into the last mile, goes through, you know exactly what's in each individual van or, or vehicle. Um, in the warehouse, everything is supposed to be in a location um, and you can actually go through and have you know, something of a, of a cascading failure if the, pro if the product is not where it's supposed to be. Um, so for us, we, we saw kind of the, the darkest corner 
of the inventory and said, okay, this is where we want to focus our technology. And you're absolutely right. It was nice because it's a, a good structured location. We can go through and we can scan, you know, for some of our customers, they'll scan um, three, 4,000 locations a night. You know, I, I must, like, I look at this and I'm, I'm sure warehouse managers look at this too. And they got to love that it flies high. You're looking at how stacked high mm-hmm. some of those boxes are. A lot of that type of inventory until you have, and I've worked in a warehouse before, you have like strike days where on a weekend at the one I worked at, you had to come in and you had to pull all the racks down and you had to catalog all the inventory on stuff that was that was up there, stuff that had either decayed and we were in apparel, so stuff that had died up there. So in apparel, a place where you stack high, this has to, the efficiency is pretty obvious. It, it's amazing. And and again, having gone through and, and one of our customers, Army Air Force Exchange, they've got 13 high pallet racking. Um, you know, I mean, it's quite, it's quite a, it, it's quite a thing to, to stay, you know, 13, uh, levels up there and look down and go, okay, yeah, that's, that's quite a fall. Um, and so for us, you know, it's no problem for the drone. You just go through and say, okay, select that pallet location at the top, hit go. And it, it flies and takes off from there. Um, so it, it is wonderfully flexible. And that's the reason that we don't, you know, encourage ground-based or, or going through and having some sort of fixed camera system on the ceiling. You can really go through and take a high-end camera and move it exactly where it needs to be. Um, and we have onboard lighting and everything. So there's no changes that need to happen to the warehouse itself. I, I know you made an acquisition, I believe it was near the end of last year, that made you sort of the largest autonomous inventory companies. Is anyone else using drones? You're the first one I've heard of that's uh, that's using it as a solution like this. Of course, yeah. So so I think the uh, we, we acquired Ware. That was our closest competitor. Um, and, and really the only other uh, company out there that was trying to do the same system off of off-the-shelf hardware. Um, our speciality has always been, you know, we're, we're software focused. Um, and if we can use off the shelf, it really allows us to go through and, and look at the drone as a commodity. Um, and so for, you know, if a customer has any issue whatsoever, we're able to ship them a brand new unit overnight, um, and allow them to keep flying. And, and none of our customers have had anything more than, you know, a few hours of downtime. Um, there are other companies out there who are attempting to do this as well. Um, and they've come to the game with, you know, kind of customized hardware. Um, and again, it's it's exciting. It's it's definitely growing space. Um, I think our advantage here is we're able to do it at a much lower cost uh, with a much more stable platform, um, just because it, it is something that is uh, is universally manufactured. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because another problem with the warehouse robots is they're very expensive, especially a lot of the models that are out now. And they're that kind of thing where they won't give you a price when you're at the conference and you go, well, how much does that cost? And they're like, well, let's set up a consultation and and, and we'll give it to mm-hmm. you. This has to reduce costs greatly by using off-the-shelf drones and using a software thing. What are kind of like, you don't have to give me exact price, but what are sort of the economics of bringing this into a warehouse? Definitely. So, so for us, um, it is a subscription model. And so for us, the, the drone itself and the hardware is inconsequential. Um, and, and when I say that, and I'm sure some of my team are going to be upset with me saying, you know, if a, if a drone crash, you know, somebody goes through and, and breaks it on the floor, they drive, they drive over with a forklift, we'll send you a brand new one. Um, the, the cost of the hardware is inconsequential to the whole system itself. Um, and so we're looking at, you know, the price of a few FTEs um, to go through and, and bring in this system. Um, and, and that's really the, the huge savings advantage. Um, some some of our customers have seen several hundred thousand dollars of savings um, just by bringing in our system and really looking at um, what are the improvements from uh, from improving inventory accuracy throughout their throughout their network. I, I can see the vision here. This seems super cool to me. If uh, other warehouse managers can, they think this would make sense at a location. They want a demo, or maybe they want to talk more with you. Where do I send them to? Absolutely. So you can come to our website. Uh, it's www.gather.ai. Real simple. Just gather.ai. Easy enough. Well, hey, Sean, thank you so much for your time today. I'll I'll let you get back to work, but thanks for stopping by the show. 
No, such a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take it easy. All right, everybody. Let's see. Meanwhile, by the way, this happened uh, well, not too far from me. It was on 24, 24 eastbound in Tennessee. That's coming down Mont Eagle. What you see here is this truck has to take the runaway truck ramp, but he's not in the left lane where this runaway truck ramp is. So we kind of had to take a car with him. Good on that driver of the four-wheeler. He noted it almost looked like they had this plan. They almost went in sync up that runaway truck ramp. The undercarriage of both their vehicles is probably not doing too well right now. Pinsy says, who the hell builds a runaway truck ramp off the left side of the road? Well, I'll tell you, Pinsy, in Tennessee, we have a ton of mountains here. That is one of them. And if you put that on the right side and you go up the truck ramp, well, you might fly off the other side and end up down a cliff. So that's why they got to put him on the left. John Filson says, definitely better than the alternative. Now, how would a self-driving car handle that? I don't know. Maybe Alan Adler will know. I'll ask him when he comes on. One uh, X Heavy says four wheeler is going to be total. The trucking company will buy the man a new car of his choice. Uh, sarcasm is my love language. Says honestly impressed that the car was paying that much attention. Usually people are oblivious to everything going on around them. True words right there. And Grumpy's right. That was probably the best possible outcome. Yeah, considering what happened there. Best possible outcome it could be. Best possible outcome for us now is that Alan Adler's here, though. He's the host of Freight Waves Truck Tech. Alan, what do you think? You've talked to some autonomous companies. Would a like autonomous Tesla know to go up the runaway truck ramp if a regular semi was coming at it? I, I don't know what a Tesla would do. I can tell you that the autonomous truck would probably be in the right lane anyway. He wouldn't even be in the left lane. So, you know, I don't think he'd have to go up on, on the on the mountainous sand, sand trap he had there, you know. I don't think. I don't know. Yeah. You always start me off with these questions, Dooner, and I just don't know. I just don't know either. Well, how do you think uh, <laughs> you, you're? Are you a, you're a lions guy, right? I mean, you're. I'm sorry, you're a tigers guy, right? I, I, well, no, not a tigers guy, but definitely a lions guy. So about week seven this year, I I definitely got on that bandwagon, never got off, and uh, really, you know, people complain about the end, but honestly, this is such a good year for them, and it's like there's you can look at next year and say, hey, this could be even better. You know, so who you, who you I thought Dan Campbell and his guys did a great job. Ellen, who are you pulling for in baseball? Because I have the projections, the final standing projections. and They got my Red Sox in last place here. 82 wins. Bottom of the AL. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be tough. huh? You know, I have been a Cleveland Indians slash Guardians fan for a really long time, but they're getting beat up so far in the spring. I mean, people are scoring 22 runs on them and stuff. So, I, you know, I don't know where I'm going to land this year. I sort of adopted the Diamondbacks last year a little bit uh, in the playoffs, uh, bought a Rangers T-shirt, World Series T-shirt in the airport, um, you know. So not sure, but I do know this. The Heritage, top Heritage baseball cards due out on the 24th next month are the, uh, you know, they do 50 years uh, of the of the look of the 50-year-old cards, which is 1975. That was the um, uh, Easter egg set, and it was just a beautiful set of cards. So I'm really excited about that. You know, they put the modern players on the old stock, and and it's really a cool, cool set of cards. That's what's behind me, by the way, for those of you who don't know. That's baseball cards back there. Well, the good news is they have the Guardians finishing second in this production. The bad news is they will be out of the wild card with only 80 wins. Now, something that was almost out of the wild card running completely was highly on, uh, ready to sort of write them off when they got out of trucking. I didn't even know, like, I don't know, what am I going to talk about with Hylion? But I just read your latest Truck Tech newsletter. Everyone go and subscribe to Truck Tech and check it out on FreightWays.com by Alan. And you have uh, some new info on what may be happening with this car now. Is there, is there a buyer? What, what does this thing do? 
Well, here's the thing. Um, you know, I'm kind of front-running this story a little bit. I can't tell you that this will definitely happen. What I can tell you is all indications suggest that if Thomas Healy, and you're a Thomas Healy fan, I know that, if Thomas can pivot this company and, and actually make this Carno generator fuel agnostic, think Doc Brown and, you know, back to the future, if he can make this thing work and generate electricity for say, truck charging sites or data centers or things like that, he might have a, a, a legitimate business and something that, you know, they can actually take to the bank, literally. And if, if he does that, then I think, you know, he will be one of those rare companies, former SPACs, that actually made it and didn't have to get, you know, uh, absorbed into something else. But that's exactly what probably happens, Dooner, because if this thing becomes successful, you know, the Highland name is important at this point, but here's Cummins, which has been both a partner and a nemesis, really, of Hylion over over the years, the last couple of years anyway. They work together to help Hylion get that that uh, 12-liter natural gas engine certified for the Hypertruck ERX, but now the Hypertruck ERX powertrain is dead. They spiked it because it cost too much, and they just couldn't get enough customers interested in a truck that ultimately was going to cost $400,000. There's just not enough interest in that. So the board of directors at Hylion said, listen, uh, show us you can make this work or stick a fork in it. And so the latter happened. But a couple years ago, Thomas bought this technology called Carno from General Electric and has been working on it. And it has tested it actually in the Permian Basin. They used, uh, you know, flare gas off of the uh, oil fields um, and created energy from it, created electricity. And so uh, this is something that if he can do this and, and get these things uh, deployed, even in some numbers this year and show some revenue, um, maybe Cummins comes around and says, you know what, you did a nice job here. We'll buy that. And then, you know, that makes it a success because they've got all kinds of needs for generators. They make a lot of diesel generators at Cummins. They also have a big data center business. And uh, this is something that, you know, you've got all these Cummins people that are involved either at the board level. Uh, Richard Freeland, the former president of Cummins, is on the Highland board. They just hired as their chief commercial officer, the guy who used to run data centers for Cummins. So there's all kinds of things that point this direction. Of course, I'll ask Jennifer uh, Rumsey next week. I'm going to interview her. She's the CEO down in Indiana. Uh, I'm going to go to Columbus and see her, and I'll ask her about this. I don't expect her to answer me, but I'm going to ask. And uh, so we'll see what happens there. Hey, so we're always looking for use cases. Uh, so Hylion may not be making that powertrain. They got they got that generator. But I know you went over to Volvo. And like right before you came on, I saw a great use case for drones. I never liked them for delivery, but I really liked that warehouse aspect they were doing. When you went to Volvo, did you find a good use case for EVs? Well, I think that, you know, they've been among the, the the biggest backers of EVs in terms of talking about them, of putting them out there. They 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 bought the battery assets from Proterra out of bankruptcy, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, one of the things we're going to look at in the newsletter this week is, is you know what, um, are they going to honor those Proterra contracts for companies like, say, Nikola that needs batteries? Are they going to honor those contracts? So um, we'll see. Interestingly, the, and, and I'll, I'll tip this one here, Dooner, you can have it first, uh, even before I write it. But uh, uh, Nikola is now testing uh, CATL batteries, which are Chinese batteries, so lithium iron phosphate, different chemistry, less flammable, which is really important for Nikola. Uh, you know, they're <laughs> testing those now to perhaps put them both in the battery electric uh, trucks as well as the fuel cells. So um, th this whole question around, uh, you know, use cases for electric and so forth, um, you know, Volvo is still very much behind it. Um, it. It's obviously slowed down, not so much because the car business for 
electric vehicles have slowed down, but I just think it's going to take some time. And, you know, I'm going to really spend a lot of time, the show today, the podcast later today on FreightWave's uh, YouTube channel, uh, gets into renewable natural gas. I went down to uh, Hexagon Agility last week in North Carolina, got a look at their operations. which are expanding because, here comes Cummins again, because Cummins has an X-15 uh, uh you know, large war engine that they're going to be running on natural gas and renewable natural gas, which basically puts you into a very good position in terms of meeting EPA uh, regulations coming up in 2027. And it's got enough oomph to get you through. I mean, one of the one of the rips on on natural gas vehicles is they're just not very powerful. They don't have a lot of torque. Well, the X-15 handles that. You got up to 500 horsepower and I think 1,850 pound feet of torque. So that will do pretty much what a diesel will do. And you get this sustainability benefit from it. Uh, natural gas is cheaper, uh, more expensive up front, but your payback is about 18 months, I think. What has longer legs, BEV or renewable natural gas for some, for, for uh, over the road trucking? Yeah, uh, long. I would have to. I would have to go with natural gas for now because I don't think until you get a real battery breakthrough, sooner something you know, solid state that you can run for you know a thousand miles basically, uh, you know, and, and keep charged uh, with enough energy density. I don't see it working in long haul trucking. So I think the the uh, it's a transition technology, but it's one that I think has got really big growth potential. You know, I was told a few months ago, the, the head of uh, On Highway, uh, Jose Saperio at Cummins told me, he said, you know, this natural gas engine, now that we have a 15 liter that meets a lot more use cases, one of your terms here, uh, you know, we could see a 10% penetration. You're talking 30,000 trucks on a normal 300,000 truck year, uh, 30,000 natural gas trucks, again, renewable natural gas, not petroleum based. Um, that's huge. And, you know, because you're talking about something that's, you know, kind of bumped along at 1%, 2% uh, for years. And, uh, you know, again, it, it, it has its drawbacks. It's got benefits, but the drawbacks were just not very powerful. You can't, you can't really, uh, you know, be confident of hauling a heavy load on natural gas. Now with this new engine, which has been tested out in China, they, they ran it in China, Cummins did, before they ever brought it here. Um, and they've got a pretty good early sign up. I think going to build 3,000 of the engines this year, uh, you know, uh, which is uh, pretty impressive. Very cool, Alan. You're going to cover that on your show today, Truck Tech. Everyone catch it out. Catch it on FreightWave's uh, YouTube channel. It's going to be on Truck Tech, right? Truck Tech's on today. That's right. Yep. Three o'clock, brother. Three o'clock today. And then, of course, it, it lives up there at the, you know, on, on the on the YouTube uh, yeah. page. Friday, we're going to take a look at uh, some more uh, Hexagon stuff. We're going to talk about Nick a little bit. Trying to think what else I'm going to do. I have to write that yet, but uh, yeah. but that's uh, that's up at f eleven o'clock on Friday. Cool. Uh, both uh, emailed and on the website. Well, hey, good luck to you and the Red Sox, Alan. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Appreciate your time. Thanks, thanks, Tim. Take care. Take care. All right. Dynamic Logistics gives you total control of your entire shipping operations, live location status updates every fifteen minutes, and the ability to combine multiple orders into a single load, leading to significant savings. Check them out at dynamiclogistics.com. That's logistics with an X. Elsewhere. Oh. 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 
Now that looks really bad. Fortunately, nobody was seriously injured in this one. But, you know, I do way too many strap work, like rate the strap work. So everyone's comment on this is Ryan Van Brocklin. The strap work was pretty good. Trucker Mike, strap work 100%. The Ohio trucker, pickup driver is at fault. If you saw that pickup driver come through up at the light over there, he does clip the truck, forcing the semi to go in the other lane. You know, there's actually a story on FreightWaves.com right now where a Warner truck on the highway went through the median and it hit another truck and it's led to a $100 million nuclear verdict. In fact, Matthew Leffler said it's like one of the most important cases that law will be looking at this year insofar as trucking goes. All right, you ever want to uh, you ever want to meet your couch, but you don't know where to start? I had to get one during the pandemic. I had to wait almost a year for it to ship to me. I never actually got to sit on the couch. Fortunately, it turned out okay when I finally got it. But now I have a gentleman that's coming on the show that's making like the match.com for couches. It's Alex Back. He's the founder and CEO at couch.com. Alex, great to meet you. Great to meet you too. Um, I'm a little confused though. I thought we were talking about beard products and, and routines <laughs> today. Are we talking about couches and logistics? Hey, what, what do you use? I just use a little coconut oil. <gasps> you are a man after my own heart. I am like a walking coconut oil commercial. Oh yeah. At all times. That's, in, that's insane. How did you figure out to use coconut oil? I feel like I did it by accident. You know what? I've always had sort of dry skin and we had some for cooking. My wife had like the unrefined kind, which you got to get the unrefined so it doesn't smell or the refined. So it doesn't, one of them doesn't smell like coconut. You got to get the one that doesn't smell like coconut. But um, I was putting some in a pan and it got on my hands and I started rubbing it into my hands. And I was like, wow, this is lasting longer than my dry skin lotion did. So then I started using it for facial. And now when I get out of the shower, it's just everywhere. My lab loves it. He comes over and just like licks me furiously. <laughs> I love it, Tim. Well, um, it's been great to meet you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for sharing your routine with me. I'm going to take it now. <laughs> how did you, uh, hey, how did you get that domain? Do, do, uh, domain, couch.com. Yeah, the domain uh, acquisition story is a story in it, in and of itself. It was, um, it was parked for a long time and it uh, was established in the 1990s and was being held by a very high net worth individual. So, um, I, someone brought it to my attention that it was available and I was really excited about it. Um, I got in touch with the broker and saw the price tag. Then I got less excited about it. But then after that, I really thought a lot about it and decided that I can make something really big and scalable with this. And I should probably put on my, uh, big business boy pants and think about it from a different perspective. So, um, yeah, we we started negotiating. There wasn't much of a financial negotiation, as you can imagine, being that the owner um, was quite wealthy and and um, very dialed into the tech space. So um, at the same time, we we I pitched him on the business idea and the concept, and um, I think I charmed him up a little bit, and uh, we came to an arrangement that made sense for both of us. Well, very cool. I mean, it's a, it's a great to name. And like you said, I had to assume it probably got picked up in the 90s, something as simple as couch.com. But what is that? What's that business idea that that you pitched him? And is it the same thing that it is now? Yeah, basically, I mean, we're, we're putting it all together as we speak. Uh, we're building a platform that is essentially, as you said, the match.com of couches. We're solving the biggest problem that is also the simplest problem in the furniture industry for customers, which is quite simply that they have no idea where to buy furniture. So you just told your story about in the pandemic when you know you had to wait weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, months and months and months. And, and that story is very, 
very similar and uh, to many other people's stories, and I think uh, very relatable. And uh, maybe on your next couch, the number one criteria point is not that it looks a certain way or is extremely comfortable, but rather that you can get it tomorrow. Mm. And a lot of people go into their couch searching uh, exploits by scouring Google or going to different retailers or heading off to Wayfair. And I think generally it's like analysis paralysis. Uh, most customers, they don't really know what they're looking at. So we're attempting to make it very, very simple and guide the customers through a process with an AI-powered quiz when they first come to our site, asking them quite simply, what are the things that are most important to you? Maybe they have a huge lab at home that sheds all the time and loves to jump on the furniture so they need something durable. Maybe they need something tomorrow, or maybe they just want that hot pink couch with like 20,000 buttons and studs. Either way, getting to the root of what customers are looking for more quickly, using modern technology tools to do that, and then ultimately pointing them in the right, right direction towards the retailer or the product that will serve them best is the name of the game at couch.com. Interesting. So how does that sort of underlying brain of the AI work? Are you reaching out to retailers and finding out what inventory they have? How is it figuring out the match between myself and the perfect couch? Yeah, so I think there's there are a lot of uh, ways to answer that question. Uh, first thing I'll say is that, you know, we intend to roll this out in phases. Um, so the first phase is uh, really just getting all of the furniture retailers aggregating the data um, in one place so that this stuff can be findable. Um, and our first task is really to um, use AI and other sort of um, product uh, recognition tools that are very smart and a little bit deeper level to tag sofas like the ones we're seeing on screen right now with various attributes, um, analyzing data points from the retailers, uh, from the stores that they're being sold at um, to figure out like how to, how to classify these things. Is this something that's next day delivery that's durable um, that's between these price points, et cetera. So essentially first it's a major tagging project that we're um, strategizing ways to, to, to streamline the process. And with modern technology tools, it's not, it's not going to be done manually. I can tell you that. So, um, that's the first thing. And then going from there, uh, we bring customers in, in a very conversational sort of, you know, easy, uh, easy to manage process of, of answering some simple questions. And once you connect those two points, then I think we're going to start seeing a lot of matches made just like on match.com. You get sort of like a match percentage with the right people after you answer <laughs> the right people that you might like after answering like a ton of questions, ask me how I know. And, um, and sometimes it works out. <laughs> well, very interesting. You know, I'm curious because you've worked in this furniture space for a while. Couch.com is not your first foray. What's unique about the furniture supply chain other than the fact that during the pandemic, it could take me like a year to get my couch? There's so much. Um, supply chain is a big one, right? And I think that's that's one for this. I mean, you just said it, so I don't need to restate um, but there's, there's a lot of other things out there. There's just so many new retailers popping up online. Um, and the brick and mortar retailers where, by the way, 80% of the commerce is still done. They're sort of, 
you know, left wondering where they fit into this whole sort of new, you know, internet first approach that people are taking to buying furniture. So um, I think one of the issues is just the, the weight of, of advertising on, on the internet and like what people will see and who's spending the most on Google to be in, in front of customers' eyes first. It's, it's, a, it's very much skewed. Um, in simpler terms, like people typing in searches for in, in Google or other search engines for couches are not necessarily going to be served by the best retailer out there. Um, you have these huge sort of legacy uh, brands, uh, brick and mortar retailers, whether they're regional chains um, like, you know, Rooms to Go or uh, Raymore and Flanagan, or you have like these lar- larger national chains, even like West Elm and Crate and Barrel and, and all of this, all of them serve the furniture industry, but you're also just as likely to see them in a Google search as you are like a boutique retailer operating out of a roll up warehouse, you know, somewhere in Van Nuys, California. And again, ask me how I know. <laughs> it's not easy, man. Like when, like that, that anecdote I'm using of getting the couch during the pandemic, what you said there, even about like as a consumer, the way I had to use my thought process is a lot of the brick and mortar stores were closed or they had limited showings. The, uh, the availability of goods was limited. So you couldn't really sit on the couch you want. So the only thing I could do was like, at my old house, I used to have a West Elm couch that I liked. They don't have the model anymore. So now I'm on their website. I can't sit on it. I can't actually see the color in person. I can't feel the fabric. But I'm also putting in my credit card for, you know, 2500 bucks to have this thing shipped to my house. Um, we need something better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think one of the things that, you know, is very interesting to me about that story that you just told or that anecdote is something you hear all the time. People still want to sit on couches. Okay. I spent the last 13 years of my life and a lot of gray hairs trying to convince people that they don't need to see it first in person because I ran an online only retailer, Apartment 2B. Um, however, I'm sort of ready to call a spade a spade and say, you know what? People just want to sometimes sit on the darn couches. So why don't we help retailers who have brick and mortar presences and showrooms? get people into those showrooms. And that's where this idea is different, that we are building this platform to help people wherever they are, meet meet them wherever they are in their process. Like you seem to have an idea of what you're looking for. You just want that like little bit of extra comfort, pun intended, to, you know, to take the plunge, to to put your credit card in for the $2,500. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So giving them easy access to showroom information and store hours and connecting them with the store. Uh, We have all types of ideas of how we can integrate with um, existing sort of CRM platforms and outreach models uh, to get customers back into the stores. And if they're ready to buy online, then we'll want to give them easy access to all of the online retailers in one space with reviews and comparison tools that help them like really figure out what's going on here. Because ultimately we're trying to, establish as much comfort as possible with these consumers before making a purchase. If they need to see it in person first, that's one way. And if maybe they just need a lot more information in one place or just to be directed and helped like they had a friend in the furniture industry, wouldn't we, wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. Well, I like your site too, because you give a lot of advice on stuff. You have like protecting couches. You talk a lot about animals. Is it ever okay to let a dog on a couch? Of course, it's okay to let a dog on the couch. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Try to stop them anyway, right? 
yeah, you can't stop these animals. They're animals and you love them. So have them on the couch. Just make sure your couch is ready for them. It's a place for them to relax as well. I mean, look, everybody to each their own. But um, if you can't snuggle up with your puppy, uh, I don't know. What, what are you really doing at home, all right? What is the best fabric for a couch? Like, let's say I'm going to your AI. I go, hey, I got a, I got a five and a seven-year-old kid, and I got two labs, and I got a cat. What kind of fabric would you point me towards? So there are a lot of fabrics. Like, I think the industry that, as I mean, I'm super dialed into upholstery. So, like, in the last decade, you know, there are very few fabrics coming out in mass production that are not <laughs> very durable. Uh, which is to say that they're mostly polyester based um, and very cleanable. Um, you see a lot of products out there that repel water and liquids. And it's just a major, major um, sales sales point in 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 a upholstery buying experience. So it's hard to kind of go really wrong, I think. But but one thing I think in this example that I, that I think people don't think about enough is what is the specific thing that you are worried about? So on couch.com in the interactive quiz that we're building, you say you have pets. So it's not just enough to say like, okay, this couch is good for pets. We want to know what are you specifically worried about? Does your lab have like nails like Freddy Krueger? Does, <laughs> do they shed like crazy? Like my dog doesn't shed. But he's older, so he's incontinent. And sometimes, you know, he pees a little bit and we have to clean it up. And that's a completely different type of fabric that would be great for that than would be for a dog that has super sharp nails. So to answer your question, you know, I think I still think leathers are very, very durable. Um, they do show scratches sometimes. But if you have like a more like I have this great um, sofa here from this brand called Simply Home, which is super uh, super uh, fast emerging um, uh, retail brand in the furniture space, they have like this, you know, weathered looking material so that when a dog scratches it, it doesn't like ruin the look of it. Um, but another a, a good anecdote is I think the idea of velvets. Velvets are actually some of the most stain resistant materials out there on the market. And customers don't know that. And yeah, there are articles about this and all retailers are talking about it, but getting that information from a trusted resource at couch.com from the couch experts telling you that it's okay to buy velvet. And in, in fact, it's the most cleanable material. Like I have a, a, a velvet couch right now. The materials made by this company called um, uh, Dorel Fabrics. It's called Ro Royale. All the online retailers are using this almost exact same fabric. Uh, and it's extremely cleanable and durable. I highly recommend it. And that's something that people would want to know. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that velvet. That's kind of like the, uh, the type of fabric we have on that, that couch we got from uh, West Elm. And you're right. It does hold up pretty well. Now, before I let you go, what is the biggest couch you have ever shipped? And how does it compare to the biggest couch in the world, the Bow Concepts Red Diva, which is over 168 <laughs> feet in length? Okay, that's not made by AI. Come on. <laughs> that's a real couch. This is from 2008. They set the world record with this couch. I love that. I love <laughs> that so much. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I've run, you know, in my, I've also, I've run a national, you know, furniture distribution network and we stopped selling anything over a hundred inches because none of our shippers would want to handle that for national shipping. And also, you know, at the company I used to run, Apartment 2B, 
um, you know, there's there'd be a lot of our customers living in apartments. So if you have something over 90, some 95 inches, you're going to be in trouble. But I think the biggest one I've ever shipped is 110 inches. That's that's my, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people got me beat on that one, but, and we did some custom jobs, but after that point, I don't think you want to have a single piece of furniture. No, no. Unless you're trying to set the world record like they were with this one. Well, Alex, Hey, it was really awesome to meet you. Everyone go get matched with your new couch on couch.com. God, uh, to your success, man, a little cowbell for you. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. Hey, keep that coconut oil going. I will. And you too. Take care my friend. I will. Thank you. Take it easy. All right, everybody. Right the strap work. Let's take a look here. What do we got going on? It's a dog on a scooter <laughs> with, a, with a hat on. Deborah Cosner says, rated adorable. Jake Herrera says, 10 out of 10. So glad this strap work video didn't end up like the rest of yours. Yeah, the one I showed earlier in the show. Jeff Rue gives it a wolf. Shania Stang says, even the goggles have straps. They sure do. Brandon Dawson says, strap work is fine. But does the carrier have a written passenger policy in place? Yes. Very important. Not everyone knows this. When you take some of your semi-truck, you have to have a policy in place. Let's talk chassis. Let's talk chassis, man. Let's talk to Mike Wilson, Chief Executive Officer at Consolidated Chassis Management, LLC. Mike, good to see you. Good to see you guys again. Thanks for having me. What's going on? What's out your window? What part of the world are you coming from? So I'm in Rockaway, New Jersey. That's the intersection of Route 15 and Route 80, just, uh, just north of Rockaway. Now, your name kind of says it all, but for those who maybe have never heard of CCM for whatever reason, what's the quick elevator pitch on it? CCM is the uh, premier chassis operator in the South Atlantic, and we offer uh, over 45,000 chassis to the shipping public through the ocean terminals in the South Atlantic. And we've recently been acquired by Oak Tree Capital, who's been very interested to help us to move the chassis provisioning model forward with a rejuvenation of the fleet. And over the next four years, we're actually going to take these 45,000 chassis that are averaging about 18 to 20 years old, and they will be under four years of four years of age in the next four years. Very, very cool. You know, you've started a uh, you started a whole uh, new program too, right? In October, I think we just yeah. saw a quick video on it. It has to do with your provisioning program, but tell us about the South Atlantic Consolidated Chassis Pool. Yeah, so back in October, as part part and parcel to the acquisition by by Oak Tree, we rolled out a new chassis model, which moved us from a cooperative model, a traditional cooperative model into what's called a single provider model. And that model allows us to not only manage the fleet, but also control the fleet. The prior model, we didn't control the assets. We only managed the assets. The equipment companies actually owned and control the assets. In this new model, we actually have executed long-term leases with the leasing companies so that we know we now control the assets. So we can put the chassis where they need to be, and we can actually assure that the condition of the chassis are up to snuff for the motor carriers and also make sure that there's enough chassis, have the right chassis in the right place at the right time for the truckers. You know, I got to ask you a question. So we we're you know, on the other side of the pandemic now, but as you see in the freight market, it's caused so much havoc by rising up and then falling down so fast. It always it always hurts on the way down. What did that do to chassis pools? Because that was a big storyline during the pandemic was the shortage of chassis. There was remember all those containers that were stuck that were on chassis and at the rail and everything like that. What does that do to the chassis market? And are, are we looking better now? Yeah, so what happened back in the peak of, of COVID, we were probably in the high 90s as far as utilization. 
nearly every chassis was being used, whether it was you know, in the repair cycle or being moved, or most of them were under containers. A large share of them were under containers stuck at warehouses. Over the past, say, 14 months, the actual supply chain has loosened up and the cargo has started to be a little bit more smoothly flowing. And we started to see a return of the chassis in a more uh, expedited way. So an example of that would be that during COVID, we had a, a dwell or a turn time above 14. Today, we're below five. So the chassis are turning much more quickly because the supply chain is actually loosened up. Well, what that did in conjunction with, as I'm sure you've heard before, a reduction in international cargo flow into the United States, we've actually dropped from that peak 98% utilization below our target of 73% utilization, and we're operating far below 60 right now. So the, there's plenty of assets out there. We just need to improve the utilization. How are we looking in the on the East Coast? Because my buddy Ian Wyland, he covers the West Coast. He does drayage over there. And he put an interesting post up just today. He said, chassis extinction on the horizon just over at Ports Valley. And there are acres upon acres of chassis stacked over there with volumes down be, be, compared to COVID. I feel soon there'll be no use for port chassis any longer. Any thoughts on that? I think he may be referring to the, the trend where motor carriers are actually getting into acquiring chassis. But I think that was a short-term trend driven mostly by COVID and the lack of availability. Motor carriers owning and operating chassis, okay, that's an, a good option if you have the density to keep those chassis moving. But in most cases, those fixed costs, those tracking responsibilities, those maintenance responsibilities, those regulatory responsibilities – or a burden to the motor carrier community. And our aim is to try to provide a product that alleviates them of that burden while still providing them a high quality asset whenever they need it. But I think across the country, you're gonna see stacks of chassis at terminals due to the drop in cargo volume. But I think that's gonna come back. We're in a cyclical business, the cycle will change. I think in the next year or so, you'll see those chassis back into normalized utilization. Are all chassis created equal? Is there is there a better type of chassis? Is there one that you'd rather have in your pool? Well, it's, it's like anything else. If you, if you own a 20-year-old car versus a two-year-old car, you know you'd rather have the two-year-old car. Right now, we're going through an upgrade program, actually a refurbishment program of the fleet in the South Atlantic, and we're adding really important features such as anti-lock brakes, hub-piloted wheels, radial tires, anti-lock anti brakes systems and, and tracking, and uh, heavy-duty legs on our, on our assets. And these are going through an entire refurbishment program wherein they come out like new. They're not new, but every part is taken off the chassis. The chassis is, is uh, sandblasted and stripped of paint. All welds are checked and fixed. The chassis is repainted. All components are put back on. And I think that the, uh, the novice would be hard-pressed to be able to tell a brand-new chassis out of the factory from a chassis that rolls out of one of our refurb facilities. So we believe that the newer chassis, of course, operate better. And we know that uh, the motor carriers believe that as well, because prior to developing the new program, we polled the motor carriers. And we said, what are your major challenges in the South Atlantic? And their challenges were availability and quality. So we made sure that when we redesigned the business model, that we, we were addressing these quality and quantity issues and we're actually operating, or we target our operating at 73%, where a normalized operating is 80%. So we have that buffer in there as far as the number of chassis. 
But the more important factor is these chassis are now like new coming out of the refurb facility, and they're more reliable for the trucker. We don't want to see truckers stuck on the side of the road with a CCM chassis. That's a no-no for us. No, definitely not. Um, how, you know, you mentioned tracking and you got me curious, how tech enabled and how is tech changing the chassis space? A lot of chassis are now getting into the uh, the GPS and telematics side of the business. And th- these, these elements have been out there for some time. They're now starting to make their way into the chassis world. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to install GPS devices on our units but also down the road, we're going to install telematics. And these are essentially sensors that would be tied to key components like tires and brakes so that the, the chassis could transmit through the GPS if the unit has a potential failure. And, and at, at the baseline for us, it'll tell us when the chassis is due for its federal maritime, I mean, the, uh, the FMCSA inspection or for, for a uh, – a yearly inspection relative to the brakes of the tires. So I think we're going to see this happening more and more with the rollout of new assets and with the refurbishment of assets. Well, you'll see these GPS devices and down the road, these telematics sensors to help the chassis operators run a more efficient fleet and a more safe fleet. How are you, um, how are you deciding on how many chassis to have in a pool? Are you looking deeply at the freight market? What kind of, what kind of numbers are you crunching to see what you like inventory that you need in terms of chassis? We typically tie the chassis fleet size to cargo volume flows. So we track what comes through the ports and what comes off the rail ramps as the actual volume driver of what the fleet requirements are. And as we talked about earlier, if you look back at COVID, if you have a a turn time of, let's call it 10 days, and today you have a turn time of five days, we're going to need a heck of a lot less chassis to move the same amount of freight. So we track the turn of the chassis and we track the actual cargo volume coming in and out of the terminals and rail ramps. And those metrics help us drive what we believe the freight, the, uh, the chassis requirements will be. Interesting. So I wonder if that's a, that could be like a bellwether of what's happening in, in the freight market. What is your crystal ball telling you? Are you preparing to bring more chassis in? Are we contracting here? Um, I showed some bad spot rates to start the show. So everybody wants more volume out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're sitting on assets, but when you're in a fixed asset business, you have to be ready to take on the growth. And there's going to be cyclical elements in the business. And right now we're in a down cycle. We're in the bottom of the trough. All indications are is that the American consumer is strong. The American economy looks like it's strong and that the consumer behavior, which really drives the cargo volumes in this country, is going to come back probably in the second half, particularly when we're talking about replenishment of the holiday and back to school sales cycles. We think that we're going to see an improvement in volume and uh, back into 25. We think that's going to continue. So our fleet is ready to take on cargo volume and we'll be able to react not only with the right number of chassis, but because of this law, we're able to get the refurb program up and running. And there'll be a lot more new chassis or refurb chassis ready to roll when that cargo comes back. Well, good thinking. I mean, we were looking at uh, we were looking at some data on here in our last episode, and one of the things that we called out was the inventory burnoff that's happening. Uh, it's one of the reasons there hadn't been as much volume, and so those those numbers are looking a little bit better. So some of the fundamentals are there, but in the meantime, someone needs a chassis. They want to talk to a chassis expert. They want to get in that South Atlantic chassis pool. Where do I send them to? They can go right online to, to ccmpool.com. They'll bring them right to our website, and you have all kinds of contact information and useful information from motor carriers and BCOs about how the chassis pool is operating. We not only have contact information, we have metrics on there to tell you how we're doing, and we also have the ability to sign you up via our, uh, via our website to, to join the pool. 
Hey, Mike, good stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the show and your time today and telling us about this pool. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. All right, everybody. Let's see what we got left here. Oh, okay, this is this is this is awesome. So over the week, well, this part's not awesome, but over the weekend, Cam Newton, take a look at this. He got jumped by six guys. Uh, he proceeded to handle each one of them. He was throwing these guys who were trying to jump him around like a bunch of little kids. He just had them against the fence. And then the very next day, he's over at a logistics conference. He's over at Rila with the legend himself, John Fitzgerald, taking selfies. There's not a scratch. On this man, Brian Glick says, John Fitzgerald is a real legend. The man is literally everywhere. He's basically the Chuck Norris of supply chain conferences. Yeah, I heard Cam actually hired him, John, to, to protect him at this logistics event. Libra Rick says, I sure hate those little clowns. I sure hate that those little clowns thought they could even attempt to fight him. They wouldn't want the smoke and got thrown around like rag dolls. Can't hold a, a good man down. She's on team Cam. David Borman says, you got to at least be Batman to challenge Cam. Cam is Superman. And uh, Brian, except when he's with the Patriots. Sorry, Cam. Uh, Brian Patrick Bork says, Fitzgerald's a legend, too. He was one of my first bosses at Seco many years ago. Our families are from neighboring villages and Count Kerry, Ireland. Logistics runs deep, man. Hey, here is a really cool question that was put out by Truck Parking Club. And it says, what's the best place to park for good views? They were over at Logan, Utah, their location there. You can see those beautiful salty mountains over there. You can probably yell insults over at, uh, who lives over there? Trevor Milton, right? Wasn't he? Didn't he have like the most expensive house? Maybe that was closer to Salt Lake City. I'm not sure if Logan is near that. Uh, Dr. Bob says the loves in Ely, Nevada was pretty stunning that last week. Yeah, it sure looks like it. It almost looks like that Utah location with those mountains there. Skewtooth says break check area westbound I-70 outside the Eisenhower Tunnel near Vail, Colorado. Yeah, that's not, that's not a bad look. And if you're uh, running away, you could just kind of run away truck ramp down that road. Mr. Grinch, look at Mr. Grinch is here. He says the TA, the TA in Albuquerque the first weekend of October. That's when they have the balloon fest going on. You park your truck there. You wake up to a bunch of hot air balloons flying away through the sky. And uh, Canadian Heavy Hall, well, he didn't really say his location. He just said, biatch, please. Not really sure what that means. Well, I mean, I know what that means, but I'm not sure what that means in terms of location. One thing we used to talk about, especially when Justin and Rooster were, were on the show, back in the back, the truck up days, we had a lot of cooking in the cab segments. And during those, nobody ever brought up the other side, the controversial side of cooking in the cab. So I'm glad that King Spud, CEO, finally did. He said, cooking in your truck ruins the truck. You won't change my mind. And I hadn't thought about this too much until he posted that. And he's and the more I think about it, the more he's probably Right. Now, a lot of people comment on this. Wojitech said it can be done with proper ventilation. Patty said she uses an air filter. She has some kind of like charcoal air, air purifier that helps take some of the smoke smell. I mean, the, uh, the, the cooking smells out of there. Renegade said... If you're inducing, introducing a bunch of steam inside, yes, a microwave isn't bad. There's only so much you can cook in it. Yeah, maybe one of those skillets over there might not be what you're looking for. Navy Man says not cooking in your truck ruins your health, though. So definitely an advocate to eat healthier while you're out on the road. Mr. Akita says nothing gets ruined as long as you clean up afterwards. I mean, maybe, but like depends on what you cook, right? You microwave a fish or you cook, I don't know, some curry or something. It might stink up that cab a little bit. Brandon Justine says, smoking, cooking, pets, forgotten Pringles can. Those are all going to leave a remote uh, aroma. Uh, 212 Trucker, check outside. I've seen people do that. Uh, cook outside. I've seen people do that in bad weather. Joe Seppi says, I cook in mine all the time. Joe doesn't care. Joe ain't that kind of guy. 
He's not that kind of person. Hey, last thing to send you home on. Let's say uh, you're out in Ireland. You got a little disability. Take a look at this story from the New York Post. Says mom loses $800,000 disability case after photos emerge of her winning a tree competition. Here's what this tree competition looked like that she risked it all to go and do. We got a little clip of it. Take a look at this. So when I first saw this story, I thought she was like hurling huge logs. But this is like something they do in Ireland where people just toss like their five foot Christmas tree when they're done with it. But the problem here is, is Camilla Grabska in Ireland in 2017, she got in a car crash. She said that she couldn't work. She got over $500,000 worth of payment. And then a year later in 2018, she was throwing trees and she actually won the trophy in the contest. Um, however, someone saw this picture of her, narked her out, and uh, she got busted. Then Justice Frost says the case is closed. The mom is still stumped on how she lost. And Florida Dad says, I should have done a neck brace. Hey, you can find the show at FW What the Truck. Find me at Timothy Dooner. Subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Take care. Don't be stranger.